How many of you have seen a picture of the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand. This is church. We can raise your hands. Great. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon physically? Great. That's awesome. So when you, when you step to the edge of the Grand Canyon, it's more of a shuffle usually, actually. You experience something different than when you look at a picture. And it may be because you're afraid of heights. That's, that's a very plausible reason. However, I, I think it's also because when you step to the edge of the Grand Canyon, you're not only seeing something beautiful and majestic. You're not only seeing something that is desirable. You're also experiencing something and learning something about yourself. And it usually starts with, I am really high up. Or, I am really small. And in this psalm, we get a majestic view of who God is in a lot of different ways. And we also get a picture of who we are before this majestic God. And it starts with, Lord, you have searched me and known me. That is the beginning and the end of the psalm. When psalms or anything begins and ends with the same thing, you would expect something similar in the middle. If you have two bookends, you expect to find books in the middle. If you have two Oreos, two Oreo crusts, you expect to find an Oreo in the middle. Um, and, and here we have David starting with, you've searched me and, and known me. This is a very, very intimate song. This is David saying, I before you, who I am before you. This is not a song about David. This is a song about God. But this is where David finds his place before God. So we don't go to the Grand Canyon and say, Grand Canyon National Park was so lucky to have me today. We say, I'm so glad I got to be a part of that. This is so much bigger than me, yet I get to be a part of what's going on. And as we move through this first six verses, it's a very clear section about God's knowing of us. You, you search and know. You know when I sit down. You search my path. You are acquainted with my ways. You know my thoughts. You know my words. This is, this is about God's knowledge of us. Very intimate. God's knowledge of who we are. That is something that is delightful. And it's something that can be embraced as God's complete knowledge. God knows everything about what's, what David's doing here. David's sitting and rising and going to lunch and laying down in bed. Knows absolutely everything. Not just about David, the things that he does, but what David is thinking, doing, saying. And I think... With us, this kind of brings a couple of different responses. David's response is delight, right? David says, this is wonderful, in verse 6. Sometimes, I'm a little bit less cautious to say, this is wonderful. If a holy God, the God of the universe, who was perfect and holy, knew everything that I thought, that kind of, kind of scares me. And I think there's, there's two causes behind there's two causes behind this fearful response to God's complete knowledge of us. One is a, a poor view of who God is. We view God very often like the celestial Santa Claus 
who gives good gifts to good people and gives coal to bad people. And he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. Except, except God's song, David's song, doesn't end with, so be good for goodness sake. It ends with, this is wonderful. God loves you. He's gracious. He's kind. God is, God is gentle. His, his knowledge is perfect, and yet it's intimate. And I think another reason this scares us is because we do know that we are sinful. That none of us could, could say, yep, totally innocent, that's me. We, we all are aware that before God, we have thought some pretty nasty things. We have done some pretty bad things. Whether it was this morning or last week or last month, we all stand concerned about God knowing all of our thoughts. And the question, uh, the immediate question seems to be, well, how come David isn't concerned? David did some pretty bad things, if you are familiar with the story of David. Um, if not, he was perceived as a man after God's own heart, yet did um, murdered someone. He had an affair. Um, he was not a completely righteous man, and yet he here is saying that this is wonderful. I'm so glad that God knows everything about me. And I think it's because this song, this psalm, is David's plea before God as others are accusing him of wrongdoing. So the last three verses, you see David kind of appealing to God against these people who are murderous. And it seems like these murderous people are accusing David of wrong, and David is saying, I'm innocent of what they're saying I did. I'm innocent of that. And if anyone knows this, Lord, it's you. He's kind of calling God to, uh, to, to be his alibi. Like, you know that I didn't do that. And when we apply this to all of our lives, we initially, on our own, can't say, I didn't do any of those things. Before God and his holiness, we can't say, I'm completely innocent. But, but, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth and lived a perfect life, lived a completely innocent life before God, was crucified, died, and buried, and rose again on the third day. He, he dies, raises, and ascends to heaven to be with God as the innocent one. Something, think of something like a train. You have an engine on a train, and that engine starts at um, whatever metro station you start at, and it goes through a tunnel, emerges from the tunnel, and into its destination. Now, all of the cars behind that engine are doing nothing except for being connected to the engine. And yet, these cars travel the same path and end up in the same destination as the engine. So, if we picture our lives as the, as the cars of a train, we, by faith, connect our lives to the life of Christ. And we have then died with him and raised with him, and we arrive at the destination of innocence with God. So before God, because of Jesus Christ, we can say, search me and know me. Because, because of Christ, I'm innocent. And because of Christ, I want to know 
What is going on in my life that is not that is not glorifying you, that is not pleasing you, because I know that as you work in me, there will be greater joy and greater delight in my life. As we transition into verse 7, we see the knowledge language kind of becoming language of presence, God's presence, and God's presence being absolutely everywhere. He begins with, where shall I go to flee from your spirit? The obvious Implicit answer is nowhere. It's, it's not going to happen. And then, just in case you missed what the word nowhere means, David goes on to say, um, if I go up, if I go down, if I go left, I go right. If I ascend to the heavens or if I descend to Sheol, places that humans could not go, you're there. If I go east, if I go west, if I go in the dark or in the light, if I go in the day or in the night, sounds like Dr. Seuss, but God is there. And, and, and yet he introduces this concept, even, even knowing that you cannot flee from God, he introduces this concept of, maybe if I go to the darkness, it'll cover me. Maybe it will hide me. And I think what David is introducing is this, this concept of hiding from God. Even though we cannot, many times we try to. And sometimes this looks like outright rebellion. Sometimes we hide from God in rebellion. And some of you may have experienced this. I have experienced this. And I think we all experience this to, to some degree or another. The, the most full picture of rebellion um, that I've seen recently is a friend of mine who um, was in jail. Talked to her parents from jail and said, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with God, and I want you to stop praying for me because it's killing me. I think that is the, the epitome, or at least a very good picture of what rebellion, hiding from God in rebellion looks like. However, there's also a little more subversive way to hide from God, and it's not something we think about often. It's hiding from God in plain sight. If you are a parent, or if you know little kids very well, you know the kids do this. Okay, you wake up in the morning, and your kids are helping you with breakfast, and they're doing the dishes. And I know kids, and they don't always do that. But when they do, you're like, hmm, this is a little fishy. What's going on here? And then they give you a few more compliments, and they're like, no, 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 I don't, you don't talk this nice very, very much. And after about the fourth or fifth time they do something abnormally good, you say, what'd you do? What are you, what are you feeling guilty about? And, and they're doing these things, they're pushing these things in front of you to hide. Dad, look at all of my compliments I'm giving you. Don't look at me. Look at them. Look at all the dishes I did. Look at those, not me. And we do this to God so often. We say, God, if I am reading my Bible and praying and going to church on Sundays and um, meeting with a mentor, I'm in, the, I'm in the clear, man. Like, I'm good. Here's all these things I'm doing, God. Look, look at these out here. Don't look at me. And even in the moments where we're praying before God, we say things like, Lord, I'll do, I'll do better next time. I'll, I'll do it better next time. Or, or even a list of people that you're praying for can, can be entirely selfish and motivated by an effort to hide from God. Lord, I pray for Bill and Joe and Susie, all of these people out there. Prayer for people is great. Prayer in general is great. Going to church is great. Reading your Bible is great. I'm not saying those things are bad. 
I'm saying using those things to hide from God, preventing God from knowing you and pushing these things in front of you is disastrous because we think we're communing with God and yet we're doing everything we can to be apart from him. Augustine, who's an early church um, father, he lived in the fourth century. He says that if we cannot cannot flee from God, we might as well flee to him. If we cannot get away from him in our mess and all of the things that are going on in our lives, we might as well embrace him in our mess because he is willing to embrace us no matter what, no matter where we are. And this, I think, brings tremendous freedom. This is not a let me get cleaned up for God. This is a God, this is where I am. This is who I am. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I thought earlier yesterday. This is what I said to this person. This is all the things I did and didn't do. Will you be with me? And he always says yes. He always says yes. And this being with God also means being with God's people. To know God is to know and care for his people. And we, we can, God can use his people to care for us and to know us. So I think the, uh, the question is, not are you going to church and are you going to small group to do good things to hide from God? But are you going to church and going to small group to be with God by being with his people? Do, do God's people know you? Do you know God's people? Do you, do you know their struggles? Do you know their joys and their delights? So far, these first, what, 12 verses or so, you could say, okay, Ty, you're telling me that God knows everything and God is everywhere. Okay, well, there's some theological words for that that you might know. is omniscience and omnipresence, okay? Those are true things about who God is. However, David is not saying God is omniscient and God is omnipresent. He's not saying that. Those are true. And that's the first step of where we're at. This, that's the foundation. However, to end there and say God is omnipresent, God is omniscient, knows all and is everywhere. To end right there is like signing your Valentine's Day cards yesterday. Wife of 25 years, you are nice. The end. It's like, that's true. Sure, your wife is nice. That's great. But there's an intimacy and a relationship that is present in this psalm and that is present and available with God that goes far beyond omniscience and omnipresence, that goes far beyond your, your, your nice wife. And... I think one question is, to what extent, to what extent does God know us and is God with us? How, how long has this been going on? Because I can conceive of it happening when I turned 20 or when I turned 18. This is when God starts being with you, when you turn into being an adult. However, as we go to the third section here, we can delight in the God who made us. You formed my inward parts and you knit me together in my mother's womb. This is not far and abstract, kind of like you were the, the stork that dropped me off at the doorway. 
That's not what's going on here. There's, there's language of intimacy at the moment of creation in his mother's womb. And David, if we look at, so David says of himself, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Okay, David knows who he is. He says this about himself. Why does he say this about himself? Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. God did this, therefore I am this. David knows who he is because of who God is and what he has done. We, we all know ourselves in relationship to someone or something else. If you, uh, if you work at, a, at an office in the dress attire is business casual, you wake up in the morning and you fix your tie, you look at the mirror, and when you say, I look good, you don't mean I am like looking good universally for everything. You mean, I look good when the standard is business casual. You meet that standard, right? And we do this with other things too. We do this with things like acceptance, with um, things like beauty, things like success. What does it mean to be successful? And usually we look somewhere else. We, look, we say being successful means having a house that has this many square feet or driving this kind of car or being liked means having this many Facebook friends or being beautiful means wearing this kind of jeans. And those standards, the standards that are out here, constructed by other people, will never, ever fail to fail you, to let you down. First of all, you can probably never meet these standards because they always are ever increasing. And second of all, they're not actually standards that last. What's cool in the the world of uh, fashion that you saw on TV will not be cool in four years. Ask your parents if you don't believe and yet, David knows himself before God, in relationship to God. God says, you are my beloved son in Christ. Not based on, not based on what car you drive. Not based on how many times you made it to church last year. Based on the work of Jesus. God says, you are accepted in Jesus. You are successful. He says, you are beautiful and wonderfully made, not because of what clothes you're wearing or your waist size, but because God formed you. And when God is our standard, when God is a person that we know ourselves before, the anxiety of trying to, to, to meet this impossible standard, to kind of keep up, goes away. And that doesn't mean we stop trying. It means we're free to try. It means we're free to please God. We're free to love others. And it means that even our future, the, the extent was, remember, so we started at the moment of creation and David's mother's womb, he says this. And then he says, my days are known by you in your book. All of them. Even before I was born, they were all known. This doesn't mean determined, but this means that we can be confident that our future, in our future, as in our past, God knows you and is with you. He made you and he cares for you. 
And as we look at David's summary statement in 17 and 18, how precious to me are your thoughts. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. Who or what are God's thoughts about? The only possible answer from Psalm 139 is about David, about the singer. So, God has the same number of thoughts about you and I as number of sand on the seashore. And when I, when I realized that God's thoughts were about the singer, were about us, I realized that I spend most of my day thinking about other people who actually think about me way less than I would like and thinking way less about God who thinks about me way more than I can even imagine. We spend so much time caring about what these other people think when they don't actually think that much about us. And we neglect the one who has a nearly infinite and infinite amount of thoughts about us. And in 19, we, we see David transitioning into his accusers, these, these liars, but he doesn't call them liars against me. He says they speak against God. They hate God and they are against God. David is still knowing himself and now others in relationship to who God is. This is not just an offense against David. David has been unjustly treated, and yet this is not just an offense against David. David realized that this injustice is before God. And we who have experienced injustice can be confident that the God who is just knows, will be with us, and will find justice. And we will not need to enact our own vengeance. David is not going out and saying, I'm going to go do all these things. David's saying, here you go, Lord. This is what's happening. And at the very end, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. If any of these desires are self-motivated, are in relationship to myself or something else, would you search me and know me? Would you teach me your ways and lead me in the way everlasting. And in this whole psalm, we've gotten a chance to see and delight in this beautiful, majestic God. This psalm gives us a chance to walk to the edge and see majesty. See a God who is great and grand and yet who created us and intimately cares for us and knows us and is with us. And in that moment, we can realize something about ourselves. This is the God who created all of us by his word. And then he sends this word, Jesus, to be with us on earth. Jesus will then know injustice. He will know accusations that have zero merit. And he alone will be the truly innocent one who then offers his spirit, who searches us and knows us, and before whom we are brought to the God who is always with us. 
by His Spirit, in His Son, God delights in us as we delight in Him and live our lives before His face. Let's pray.